Hey, good morning all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. I'm uh, so glad to have you along today. As you know, if you read the description there, that we are going to be talking today about the impact of the student loan forgiveness on inflation. And even more importantly, like, how does all that work? How do we think about how the government spends money? And is canceling debt the government spending money? Um, Dr. Fadal Kaboob is going to talk to us about that. And, and Fadal, I'm really interested in that in that point. Someone made that that argument yesterday. Maybe you don't think about this as spending money when it's canceling of debt. Maybe. So we'd love to get into that. And uh, if you're new to our podcast, thanks for being with us. Talk about all manner of things that we think are about the common good, but especially uh, how does our how do our economics impact people's lives? And what has been so helpful, uh, Fadal, in talking with you is this understanding that has changed my mind about how the federal government functions in our economic system. So uh, as we do often with you, uh, take us uh, on, a, uh, on, a, on a short journey of explaining that, and then we'll talk about, about this. But as we always do, we, we start with a little weather update. I live in Minneapolis, been bragging all summer. It's another glorious day. I don't get to do this in July, in January, in February, and March, but in June, July, and August, uh, it's just a perfect day. Rob Ryersey here from just outside of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Rob, how are things there? Hot, muggy, it miserable. Frankly, I'm, you know, I'm a, I grew up in the North. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, you know, I can handle the snow, can handle the cold. I'm the kind of person that sweats just sitting still. And nice. this weather's miserable. But, well, you know, we, we will I, watch your, your shirt fill with sweat as, oh, as we yeah. go. Fantastic. <laughs> Fado, how does, it, how does it look when you look outside your window? Well, good morning. I'm, I'm here in Granville, Ohio, so not very far from Cleveland. So it's it's sunny and, and nice today. All right. So, Fado, what do you think? Uh, this big student loan push that that all happened, you know, uh, the Biden administration came out and said, we're going to eliminate debt for certain borrowers of uh, federally backed student loans. This was a, a piece that the White House put out. Uh, so this is what they want us to think about, $20,000 of debt forgiveness for people if they got a Pell Grant. That is if you make yep. less than $125,000 of taxable income. And uh, that um, if you have undergraduate loans, you can cap your limits at 5%. And some people have said, wow, this is just going to make things crazy, that we already have a uh, inflation problem. This is going to make things worse. Um, how, how do you think about this, especially from this perspective of modern monetary theory and what the federal government's role in, in our overall economic system is? All right. So lots of things to uh, to pick at there, starting with uh, with one of the words that was uh, printed there on the White House uh, statement, which is debt forgiveness. Uh, and I and I insist on calling this student debt cancellation, mm. partial cancellation. Obviously, it's not full cancellation rather than forgiveness, because forgiveness implies you've, you've uh, committed a sin, uh, you've committed a crime, oh, nice. yeah. and we're going to forgive you <laughs> for, for what you've done. And what is, what is the crime here? The crime is going to college, uh, earning, uh, developing skills, professional skills, academic skills, uh, life learning skills, to contribute to society, to become a more productive member of society, to contribute to uh, better quality of life. So th those are the crimes that uh, <laughs> students have committed, and we've decided to forgive them partially for for their sins. So forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Right? That's what you're saying. More than apology for having <laughs> through uh, you know years of uh, of uh, debt payments, interest payments uh, mm -hmm. for doing the right thing uh, as a as a you know productive member of society. So that's the kind of a rhetorical starting point that it, it yeah. it's not really helpful to use this kind of language because it, it doesn't acknowledge what the roots of the problem are. That the reason why we're in such a severe student debt crisis is because we've we've neglected one of the most important pillars of, of our society, of our economy, which is education. Uh, so we can come back to that point. In terms of, um, you know, a lot of the opposition to this uh, partial debt cancellation uh, by the right and by the, the, the Democratic Party establishment, the professional economists, the, the gatekeepers, as I call them sometimes, is that this is going to be inflationary. You know, mm -hmm. We've heard President Obama's former uh, economic advisor, Jason Furman, saying we're pouring gasoline on the 
inflation fire, inflation flames here, um, because this is going to put billions of dollars into the hands of people and they're going to go out and add to the inflation pressure. Mm-hmm. So here I'd like to, you know, take a pause because most of the, the concern here is about inflation. And, and when you go back pre-COVID, because we want to understand, is this going to be inflationary? Is this really going to make things yeah. worse? Or is this just the equivalent of uh, any of the other tax cuts that the government provides to uh, businesses, to the elites or whatever? So when you go to the pre-COVID time, where we had, we, when I say we, MMT economists, uh, economists who uh, designed and supported the efforts to pass, uh, uh, what is it called, the, the Green New Deal, right? When we designed that massive transformative structural program, we designed it with an eye towards inflation, with an eye towards the inflation pressure points of the economy. So let's go back to that pre-COVID time and look at what are the inflation pressure points. And then I'm going to add to those inflation pressure points, the COVID inflation pressure points. And then I'm going to add to it the Ukraine-Russia conflict inflation pressure points that we're living through right now. And then we'll see if the student debt uh, partial cancellation adds to that inflation or not and, and what else we can we can do to tame this uh, this inflation. So pre-COVID in the US, I'm not talking about the rest of the world, we have four inflation pressure points, um, energy and transportation, uh, housing, uh, real estate, uh, especially in certain pockets of real estate in, in this country, uh, number three, healthcare, and number four, higher education. And these are, the first three are connected to higher education in a way that I'll explain in a second, because it's gonna be very important for us to, to address today. So those four areas of inflation pressure point from an MMT perspective, when you analyze why do we have rising prices in those particular segments? Two reasons. One, we have lack of productive capacity. In other words, we haven't invested enough to increase the supply Mm -hmm. side to make those resources more available at a lower cost in a democratic way. So we've created an an exclusive system in healthcare, an exclusive system in education, an exclusive system in housing uh, to some extent and so on. And the number two source of inflation for each one of those areas, especially the first three, is what I call abusive market power. In other words, you have a handful of corporations that actually control and monopolize those markets. And as a result, they can raise prices simply because they can They can exclude competitors and crush competitors simply because they can. So how do you address these these types of uh, inflation structures? You do two things. Number one, you increase the productive capacity. And number two, you tax and regulate that abusive market power out of existence. In other words, you democratize those sectors. And that's how you tame the source of inflation in those areas while creating millions of jobs and democratizing the system. The problem is that if you're going to do that, you're going to have to have lawmakers who actually are courageous enough to do the right thing. In other words, tax and regulate the abusive hands that feed them in terms of uh, uh, campaign donations and and, and things like that. And, And that's why it was such a dangerous program, quote unquote, dangerous program to the political establishment. So, We've, that's, that's the part that we didn't do. When you think of higher education in general, a lot of people are saying, well, well, that's the, really the cost of higher education that's, that's the problem, not really the debt. Well, mm-hmm. both are a problem. But why is it that in the last three decades, uh, the cost of higher education doubled uh, or tripled? Uh, some people uh, forget what the figures are. I don't have them in front of me. But it's a massive increase. Uh, and the cost of higher education. Two reasons, two primary reasons. Number one, for decades, we've substantially reduced the contribution of states and federal government to the cost of public education, higher education, meaning community colleges and state universities. So when you're a state university or, or, or a community college, 
And the contribution from your state to your budget, to your operating budget, is reduced. Your only option is to raise tuition, tuition and fees. So as soon as public universities raise their price, so to speak, because they have to, that allows private universities to say, well, we're slightly better, so we need to be more competitive and we're going to raise our prices accordingly because they too also are receiving less and less uh, financial contributions from uh, states and from from federal governments. Number two, universities as operating entities are the equivalent of of small cities, right? They have housing, they have roads, they have heating and cooling, they have staff, they pay uh, health insurance for their staff, all kinds of costs are involved. So when you go back to those three other inflation pressure points that I mentioned, universities are on the receiving end of those inflation pressure points. First inflation pressure point, energy and transportation. Huge burden, the cost of heating and cooling university buildings, especially when you have to build bigger buildings, fancier buildings to attract students who are willing to pay. Yeah, I was going to say, is a lot of the cost that, you know, that, fancy gym facility and housing and, and food service facilities. I mean, it's unreal what you You're see on these meetings with, with other, you know, colleges and universities who are, have the lazy rivers and the fountains and, the, yeah. and all of that. I mean, it used to be uh, that the nicest building in town would be like the, the fire station. Cause I was always surprised as a kid. I'm like, how come the fire station is always the nicest building or maybe the library? Unless you're on a university campus, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in a city, and you're like, oh my gosh, these buildings are unbelievable. Sure. So it feels like there's a whole lot of other competitive costs going on there. But but that's exactly. not really, that's that's overall the price of, you know, how, how do we decide to it is one It is one of the components, but the, the cost of energy is a huge component sure. of the cost of doing business for universities. So the entire system faces higher cost of energy, universities transfer that cost onto students. Number two, uh, real estate, construction, you know, if that cost goes up across the country, especially in certain pockets of, of the country, that transfers into higher cost of doing business. Cost of healthcare for university employees is a huge burden. Mm-hmm. Cost of health mm-hmm. for construction companies or construction workers who are building those buildings or maintaining those buildings, all of that inflation pressure points from big pharma, from from the from the healthcare system that we have, which we can have a, a whole other hour discussion about that, that gets transferred onto the cost of doing business for universities. So universities are facing the three inflation pressure points that the rest of us face anyway, mm-hmm. plus the fact that states and, and, and the federal government is contributing less and less to their cost of doing business. So they have to raise tuition. So if we don't right. address all of these things simultaneously, the cost of higher education is going to keep increasing. And on top of it, we decided instead of fixing these problems at the source, we decided, you know what, we're not going to touch the inflation pressure points. We're going to let it fuel the cost of higher education. And then we're going to go to those 18 year olds and their parents and say, hey, there's these loans for you. You can yeah. actually go through this. Don't worry about it. All right. So, Fadl, talk to us about inflation and how it works. Because the thing that we're hearing all the time, you hear this across all sides of political ideas, is no one's really quite sure what's going to cause inflation to happen. Like, if you knew what it was, mm-hmm. then you would just address it. But there's all these factors, all these features. Something causes inflation. And the central bank, the Federal Reserve, is super worried about this. And as we've talked before in this podcast, they have a limited number of things they can do about making money available. Can you just talk right. a bit about what is inflation, where yeah. does it come from, and what are the things people don't often understand about how the economy actually works? I, you know, we've been talking about this a lot, and, and I spent you know a good fifteen minutes looking at images about modern monetary theory. And, uh, and, and there's one here that says, look, use a, use a bathroom or kitchen sink. The faucet is government spending. That's money going in. Water is the money itself. The sink stopper is like tax policy. And you let money in or out. And then the, uh, the drain is like uh, taxes and money spent from the economy that then goes, o- goes away. 
So what you don't want, obviously, is you don't want you know a big spillover from there being too much money because the theory then is that that causes people to raise prices. That's been confusing to me my entire life, that the idea that if you have more money, if we all have more money, things are going to get more expensive. It doesn't feel to me like that's really healthy. It seems like if there's not enough things, things get expensive, as opposed to you all have too much money to spend, so you're just going to like collectively waste the money. <laughs> but maybe you'd buy other things, but I don't think someone's like, hey, you know what, sweetie, let's spend $3 more on dinner tonight because we have more money. They might just say, let's have another dessert, not spend more money on the one meal they were going to have. Can you help us understand how an economist thinks about inflation and why relieving debt would then put more money in the economy, which would then cause inflation, which is the big argument that people, separate from the fairness question about student loan mm -hmm. forgiveness, but this inflation thing, Okay, sure. Talk a bit about uh, let, let's start with the with the simple definition. Inflation is uh, is basically uh, when the average price level in the economy goes up month to month, year to year. Uh, the opposite of inflation is called deflation, when the average price level month to month or year to year goes down. So we're we're not in talking about that. We're talking about inflation right now. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the, the, the government agency that actually measures inflation for us on a monthly basis, what they basically do is they look at the average American family, not the richest, not the poorest, and they look at the basket of goods and services that they actually consume. You know, you buy milk, you buy butter, cereals, you know, clothing, transportation, all kinds of things. And they look at the price tags of average items in that category and they create like an average for milk, an average for meat, an average for all kinds of things that we consume. Again, not the fanciest product, not the lowest quality kind of average. And they build an index called consumer price index. Think of it as a weighted average of the prices of those things that the average family buys. And then they track that index month to month, year to year. If the index goes up, we call it inflation. If the index goes down, we call it deflation. In our situation right now, that index is going up and it's going up at a rate of eight and nine percent annually. That's why we have such a high inflation rate in, in the last few months. So that's inflation. That's how it's measured. It's based on the prices of the things that the average consumer uses. There's a few more details, but that's that's the easiest way to think about it. We're told, and when I say we're told is, is the, the mainstream perspective, is that when the government spends more, spends too much and has a larger deficit, is going to put way more money into the system and that's going to cause prices to go up automatically. What MMT economists emphasize is that it's not really the fact that the government is spending more that's causing inflation. It's the fact that Sometimes the productive capacity of the economy can't handle the additional demand from consumers. In other words, yeah. we have a shortage of uh, housing and consumers want to rent more or buy more. So the demand for housing goes up, but the supply side, the productive capacity can't meet that new demand. So it leads to higher prices. So the solution here, you have two ways of fixing this, depending on where you stand on, on the spectrum of the economics profession. One way to fix it is, is to say, you know what? We're not gonna put more money in the economy. We're not gonna give those workers higher wages it, even better. We're gonna do something to make some of those workers unemployed so that they don't have any income right. to go out and buy a new house. Right. That's one way to do it. Technically. Sure. Yeah. You kill a certain portion of the demand by throwing some people under the bus. Another approach to do this is to say, well, you know what? We could hire even more workers and build more public housing, more affordable housing yeah. and fix the problem, which is we don't have enough housing. And you can think of this in any other sector of the economy. So the mainstream of the profession says we need to reduce demand. Right. Because the government is not in the business of building homes and, and, and doing the production. Right. That will be socialism. Um, so what do we do? We tell the Federal Reserve Bank to raise interest rates, make it more expensive for 
consumers who already have debt. So they have yeah. to pay more in, in interest to refinance mortgages or refinance uh, small business loans or whatever, and make it more expensive for any new borrower to go in and say, I want to borrow money to start a new business or to, to, to consume more or whatever. And that slows down the economy. That's yeah. effectively what the Fed is doing. Hmm. The problem is there are other dimensions of inflation huh. that I described a little bit earlier. It's not just about the production side, the supply side. It's also about the fact that real estate companies, landlords have abusive market power. So they hear about everybody's talking about inflation because COVID this and COVID that and Ukraine this and Ukraine that and say, you know what? This is the time to raise prices. Nobody's going to complain. I'm going to say it's the market. I'm going to say it's the global economy. I'm going to say it's COVID. Even though it might be true that the cost of doing business warrants increasing my prices by, say, 3%, I'm going to take advantage of the situation and raise my prices by 5 or 6 or 7% and blame it on COVID, blame it on the market. So but for that, that supply chain, yeah. so for that to cause inflation across an entire economy like we have in the United States, that would have to be going on at a massive scale, right? You, you couldn't have ten percent of the landlords say, "Hey, you know what? Let's let's okay. jump let's jump rents." You would have to, or people selling houses saying, "Let's let's uh, raise our prices a bit." To cause inflation in a multi-trillion-dollar economy. Yeah, that would have to be a level of collusion that I don't know feels impossible. Yeah. Like the idea that it's just individual sure. people yeah. selling, and I've you know we've all tried to get have a little bit of work done and called somebody and said, "Hey, could you cut?" And they're like, "Hey, here's the price to you know uh, paint your house," and you're like, "Wow, that's a lot." And they're like, "Yeah, you know, supply chain issues." <laughs> and you're like, "Okay, yeah. all right, I'm not sure it's supply chain issues, but." Fair enough, but I don't. It doesn't feel like that could cause inflation. Like what on this massive scale and so quickly, like inflation just like peaked up so fast. It, it comes with concentration of market power. Okay, so it's it's much easier when to to face this kind of situation. Easier meaning to to see this kind of inflation when you have a particular market or particular product controlled by four or five or six right. corporations yeah. on, on yeah. national scale. Yeah. Um, and on a global scale, to, to be honest, I mean, the food system and, and globally is controlled by five major mega corporations. Uh, we have another problem, which is, you know, we do have antitrust laws, but our antitrust laws are outdated because they think of monopolies in the way we thought about monopolies more than 100 years ago, when today market power is yeah. so insidious and you know does whatever it needs to do to avoid antitrust regulations to stay under the radar uh and we have major you know private equity firms who don't monopolize a particular company by owning the entire company but they own enough shares say 20 or 25 percent to have a big say in how that company is organized and how uh, it's it's uh, it's investments, it's uh, CEOs, it's corporate decisions, and they take say company one, say in the airline industry, and they do the same. They own another twenty percent, and another thirty percent, another twenty five percent, and all the other major airlines, Got so it. that they're affecting the entire airline industry. And they do the same for energy companies. They do the same for transportation companies. They do the same for uh, food and retail companies. So they have their hands and all the major components of the inflation index that I talked about, but they stay under the radar screen because they don't own 50% and they don't own an entire industry. They just own enough to control and influence long-term decisions, strategic decisions um, across the system. We don't have antitrust regulations that tackle this type of insidious corporate uh, control yet. And I say, yeah, because it takes lawmakers, the 535 people we sent to Washington, D.C., to actually sit down and draft new regulations and pass and enforce these regulations on these mega corporations that finance a lot of the establishment uh, electoral campaign, uh, you know, uh, coffers are packed with uh, packs and super PACs uh, from, from these corporations. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this. So. 
so you've explained inflation and kind of you know what happens when when more money comes into the economy and kind of debunking some of the ideas that that people have what about when people say yeah but if if more money comes into the economy if there's more money pumped in then the value of the money goes down and so this dollar that I have is worth less than it was before because now there's more dollars that are mm. that are around. And so it's not that the prices go up necessarily. It's that, you know, this dollar is worth less than it was before. Yeah, what, what people mean when they say it's worth less, uh, that's the result of inflation, meaning the purchasing power of a dollar bill in your pocket goes down. I used to be able to you know, get a $10 bill out of my wallet and be able to buy a sandwich and a drink. Today, with the effect of inflation, with the same $10 bill, I can only afford the sandwich. I can't get the, the drink with it because prices have gone up across the board. So my $10 bill is devalued. That, that's inflation, right? So a lot of people focus on, on, the, on the symptoms. It's not the fact that there is more dollar bills in the system. It's the fact that there is either less productive capacity. And when we say productive capacity, it means the uh, capacity of the economy to produce sandwiches in, in, in this case or soft drinks or whatever, which may have something to do with the availability of the inputs. It could be that aluminum cans, we have shortages of aluminum cans because there are supply chains problems or because the cost of energy that goes into producing and transporting aluminum cans has gone up. So the price of your aluminum uh, can, you know, soft drink is going to go up. So yeah. you have to focus on the source of the problem, which is lack of productive capacity and supply chain disruptions. And in some cases, abusive market power that says, you know what, everybody's talking about supply chain disruptions, even though I don't technically have supply chain yeah. disruptions, right. but I'm going to claim it's happening across the board. And yeah. my price so with, with the student loan cancellation, there's this idea that this is going to pump all of this money into the economy. Mm -hmm. A, that isn't that isn't going to cause inflation because that's because that's not going to drive up prices, you know, from from what I hear you saying. But B, don't you think that it is a bit of a misnomer to 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 suggest that forgiving or canceling ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars worth of debt on on someone who owes one hundred and forty thousand dollars you take $10,000 off that, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like that money's going into the economy. It's simply, you know, causing that loan to be paid off sooner than it, than it would have been. Right. Because I mean, most people who have student loan debt that like, this is a fraction of the number that they have. It's not going to be in a, it's not like everybody's getting a $10,000 check. It's just that they're going to be able to pay off their student loans a little bit sooner than they would have otherwise. Am I thinking right. about this incorrectly? Uh, absolutely. So the, the fact that you cancel $10,000 from like the student loan uh, burden, the debt burden that students have, it doesn't mean it's the equivalent of $10,000 per borrower have entered the economy immediately and is going to add to the spending. It's the $10,000 payments plus interest payment over the next 10, 15, 20 years worth of monthly payments that's being canceled. So yes, the loan will be paid a little bit early, paid off a little bit earlier, which means the impact of that equivalent amount is really spread over many, many, many years. So it's not like $500 billion of additional spending went into the economy. The right. other thing, the other way to think about this is that these were payments that were going to be made to uh, the, the federal government that now the federal government is saying, well, I'm, it's the equivalent of a tax, right? So it's the equivalent of a tax cut. We're saying we're not taking this tax. We're giving you a little, a little break. Yeah. So it's not like the government is spending more today in terms of $500 billion more. It's spread over many, many years, and it's extremely small in terms of the size of the U.S. economy right. to constitute a massive injection of money that would add to any inflation uh, in, in any significant way. Uh, in terms of its impact on the borrowers themselves, yes, it's, it's significant to have a reduction of ten or $20,000 mm. um, 
from from your student loan burden. But for a lot of borrowers, they're still paying a lot more over the next uh, several uh, years, in some cases, decades. So it's really, you know, you know, I, I wish the entire thing was canceled so we can have a real conversation about its impact. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Let's just, just do 10,000 here and 20,000 there. And, and let's pretend this, it's really not that inflationary. Let's cancel the whole thing and then talk about, is this really going to be inflationary and, and have a real test of, of the impact of this on, you know, transforming those lives and, and yeah. moving forward to the real issue, which is, how do we make sure this never happens again to any other generation moving yeah. forward? Well, that, yeah. that does f- feel like it's a bit of a problem. Uh, you know, one of the things I did hear about this reason the number was set at 10,000 and 20,000 is that 45% of people are going to get this relief. That is the amount that they owe. Hmm. Yeah. So the reason they've settled on that versus other numbers have been thrown around is that it seemed to have the most amount of impact. There were a lot of people sure. who didn't finish college. They took out student loans, especially the first and yeah. second year, didn't earn a degree. Their earning power hasn't gone up, but they're saddled with this debt. And to be freed up from it is a massive shift for, for people. Because there's a lot of people for whom $100,000 of debt is reasonable. Sure. Say you buy a house or know, maybe a graduate degree or something. But for a lot of people, $10,000 of debt, that prevents them from doing a whole lot of things. So. It's yeah. supposed to kind of free people up. But follow one of the things I haven't understood, and this I heard this way back in the Obama administration. I think the Obama administration made a change where the federal government took over the financial obligations of federally backed student loans. In other words, if I take a loan from my bank, from you know, Bremer Bank or somewhere, this local bank nearby, um, and then the federal government sends me $10,000 to pay off my loan. Then I take $10,000, I give it to my bank, pay off my loan. But if someone has a student loan, they're paying that back to the federal government, right? Even though it comes through a bank, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, the, the, the federal mm-hmm. government has to use banks to move its money around. It doesn't, doesn't yeah. give it. There's no, there's no uh, Uncle Sam ATM where you go get money from the federal government. You, gotta, you have to get it through, through a bank. Yeah. But student yeah. loans are actually owed to the federal government? Is yeah, that- so what I think what you're referring to there, um, uh, Doug, is uh, uh, the federal government went in and essentially bought those contracts, those, those debt contracts, and uh, refinanced them at a lower cost. So from a student perspective, from a borrower's perspective, owing the money to the federal government means lower interest rate and, and easier, more affordable payments, as opposed to staying with a private lender that is is not going to lower your cost and, and is and, and may be imposing higher fees for for lack of payments and, and things like that. So it was a, a band-aid, right? But it did transfer that debt. Uh, to to the government, so the money is owed to the government as opposed to the private lenders. So the private lenders were paid off. Yeah. Like it's like the equivalent of refinancing your mortgage. Sure. You had debt from the first bank, and you pay it off with a loan from a second bank. So now you owe the money to the second bank. Except the second bank in this case is the federal government, and presumably at, at lower cost and better terms. And that makes a big difference in how the economy works. Do I have that right? Because when it's federal money that's then mm-hmm. not being received. In other words, the federal government had said, we have a budget that says we're going to get back this amount in student loan payments. Oh, mm-hmm. now we're not going to get that amount of money into the federal treasury. Yeah. That's so different than- The happened a long time ago. That's what, what I was getting at. Now is the, the, the equivalent of the tax that the students are paying to the federal government is being reduced. So it's the equivalent of a small tax cut to yeah. the borrowers. Yeah. Yeah. So this is helpful. So follow the, you know, so many people are saying, hey, it's not fair that my tax money should go to pay off your student loan. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. <laughs> no, no. That's, that's so not how, how does it work? Anybody's tax money. So, so this is this is where it's important to understand how the sovereign federal government. We're not talking about states and municipalities here. 
states and municipalities, they have to tax somebody in order to spend on a particular budget item. The federal government operates in a completely different um, framework of public finance. The sovereign U.S. federal government is the issuer of the dollar. In other words, it has to spend dollars into the system first, inject money into the system first, and then it can go in and tax some of it out, right? You can't tax something that doesn't exist. You can't, you know, not create dollars into the system and then say, we're going to tax more so that we can spend tomorrow. It's the other way around. You're playing, yeah, if you're playing Monopoly, if you're playing Monopoly, the bank has to like, give everybody a starting amount of money for anybody to have any money, you know? Exactly. And the federal government does it in two ways, by the way, because I I know a lot of people say, well, banks create money and all that. Well, yeah, but they can't create their own money. They have to, uh, they have the legal authority to create money, not print money, create money via the process of lending. And the only reason they're allowed to do that is because they have a license from the federal government that allows them to do that under certain terms and conditions. And those those are important regulations. Not everybody can create money in the system and have it tied to the U.S. dollar the same way the banking system does. So creation of money has to come first and then taxation takes money out of circulation. So the MMT perspective emphasizes that the reason the federal government taxes the population is not to fund its operations. There are so many other important reasons. One of them is to actually give value to that worthless piece of paper we call the U.S. dollar. If there was no tax imposed in U.S. dollars, there will be no reason for us to accept the value of the dollar and and payments. And we've seen this in many parts of the world when the government loses its capacity to impose taxes fines and fees in its own currency on its own people, the value of that currency goes out of control. And people typically switch to another currency, usually a foreign currency. So the reason why we impose taxes is to actually create demand for the US dollar. Otherwise, Mm. it will disappear from from Mm. the market. So that's an important reason to tax. The other important reason to tax is to withdraw money out of circulation. The question is, from where should we withdraw that money and for what reason? Should we withdraw money by taxing lower income people, higher income people? Should we tax polluters? Should we tax gamblers? Should we tax smoking or drinking? Or these become political, social, strategic choices that we as a democracy should make. And from an MMT perspective, we say, The federal government doesn't need to tax in order to spend. It can spend its own money into the system. That's the the privilege that the federal government has. And we should do it democratically based on national priorities. But the taxing, we should tax Wall Street, not because we need their money or their permission, but because we want to reduce speculation, because we want to reduce inequality. We want because we want to, you know, tax, you know, multi-billionaires to reduce their power and influence in politics, reduce inequality, not because we need their money or their permission yeah. to fund healthcare or education. Yeah, you're, say, you're so, saying you want to change behavior in some way. Change behavior, exactly. Not because we need the revenue. Now at the state and local municipal level, you do need tax somebody to pay for the school district. Right. You do need tax somebody in order to pay for the roads or, or whatever it is the, the state or yeah. municipality needs to needs to build. That's a very different public finance framework. You need to so, tax or to spend. Yeah. So who's paying for this student loan cancellation? The federal government is paying for it. It's not it's not anybody's tax taxes that are going into it. Uh, think about it this way. When the federal government provided the initial loans, that was the spending. What we're talking about here is that the government saying, you owe me money, and now what you owe me is going to be $10,000 less, right? So yeah. the spending already took place, it, and it wasn't anybody's tax money that allowed the federal government 10 years ago or 15 years ago to issue a student loan. It was money created into existence, which is how the federal government always spends, which is why 
the deficit is larger and larger and the national debt is larger and larger. And that's the part that a lot of people pick on and say, oh, the reason we have inflation is because the federal government debt is too high because the government is putting too much money in the system. So now we're back to square one talking about what actually causes inflation. It's not the fact that the government spends. It's the fact that our productive capacity in certain pockets of the economy is not keeping up with demand. There's high market concentration or abusive market power. That's where we should target our focus yeah. rather than on the fact that the federal yeah. government can actually create its own money and spend okay. money. Into so if the, if the federal government, when they spend money, it's, it, they are creating money, bringing it into existence. Uh, what do they do with tax dollars? Like what, like, where does that money go? This isn't a, why do you collect taxes question? It's a, what happens with the tax dollars that are created, that are collected? If you go to uh, any of the branches of the 12 Federal Reserve banks in, in the U.S. And, and go on the, on the tour of the building that they uh, offer, uh, they'll take you and show you the vault and the gold and the different build, you know, parts of the building. Then on the way out, you usually find an intern standing at the door with a big basket in their arms with little bags of shredded money, <laughs> dollar bills as, as a souvenir. Uh, that's, that's what happens to, to tax revenues, quote unquote tax revenues, because the federal government doesn't need to collect its own money in order to spend it the next day on other programs. Of course, some bills are not shredded because they're still fine. But think of it as that that picture, that uh, sink that uh, 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 that you put on the screen earlier. That the drain, yeah, there you go. That the drain is the equivalent of what taxes, uh, what happens with taxes. That money is drained out of circulation. So any money that's taken out of the system by the federal government is not part of the money supply. It can be shredded. A lot of it actually is not even physical dollar yeah, it's bills. Just, it's just deleted it's, from yeah, a spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a so, spreadsheet number that goes up yeah. and then goes this, down. So I mean, Fadl, I'm, I'm having like, listen, I th- we've had several of these conversations. You know, I I've been a I have been interested in MMT for a long time. Some like. Something is just clicking in my in my brain right now that like it is like this is Welcome this is such a mind boggling like I mean it makes so much sense but it mm-hmm. is not the way it feels like it's not the way anybody thinks about this. Yeah, can, can I or, add to that? You know, you've you've referred to this as a Capernaum kind of moment, right? And if you know how we've thought about the location of the sun to the earth. People used to think that the sun revolved around the earth, and now we recognize that it's the other way around. That's the mm-hmm. way people think about government spending and taxes. This image we have on the screen, and again, I just pulled off the internet, has three components on the top bar for those who are just listening and three components on the bottom. And the three components are people with their money on the top one. In the middle is the federal government, and then there's a garbage can. And they think that people you and I, give our money to the federal government, and then the federal government spends it. So if the government's going to spend money, there's only one place to get it, and that's from all of us. Right. That's the idea there, that the sun revolves around... They borrow from us. That, yeah, that's they, the other thing. That they borrow. borrow it from us. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Where what really happens, and this isn't like this is what ought to happen, it's just this is actually how it goes for the federal government, and the, the reserve, the, the federal reserve and all, is... That's all inverted. The first part is the federal government creates the money, spends it into existence, says to banks, we're going to put X amount of dollars available to you in your computer system so you can start to give this out and we'll have enough dollar bills and $100 bills and so on. But most of it's going to be computer now transactions. Then that money goes into the economy and circulates and spinning around. Inside that circulation, Father, tell me if this is right. That's where our city government is. They're part of the circulation process. So they do have to get money from us and spend it. The federal government's not in the circulation business. And then taxes, the money's just destroyed or deleted. It's, it goes away. So if the government puts $100 million in, then takes out a million dollars in taxes, there's $90 million in circulation. That's how right. it works. That money doesn't go into the Federal Reserve Bank account 
But Fadl, when I have said this to people, that when yeah. you're taxed, your money just goes away, they look at me yeah. like <laughs> yeah. you're... I'll, I'll give you a, a, a very easy kind of linguistically okay. uh, uh, accessible way of explaining this. Uh, what we say in the in the MMT literature is that anybody can technically create money. The difficulty is in getting other people to accept it as real <laughs> money. So let, let me give you this example. Bitcoin, let's, let's say. say. Give me a ride to the, from the market back to my place because I needed a ride. And as you're about to leave, I, I shake your hand and say, thank you. And, and I say, I owe you a cup of coffee. That's my word. That's my bond, right? Pun intended here, my bond. So I owe you a cup of coffee, which means next week when you come by, I'm going to give you a, a free cup of coffee from my shop or from my house or whatever. I could have taken a little piece of paper and written on it, I owe you a cup of coffee. And I sign it and I put my you know thumbprint on it or whatever so that when you come by the house or my shop, anybody in the building will say, oh, you have this piece of paper that says Fadl owes you a cup of coffee. We're going to make you a cup of coffee, even though he's not here, because we know you, we trust you, we trust the, the signature and, and so on. That little piece of paper is the equivalent of money because you can use it to come to my shop and literally buy a cup of coffee. But I guarantee you, you can't take that piece of paper anywhere else in the system yeah. because it's not acceptable anywhere else. It's just acceptable within that little circle nice. of people who know you and know me. That's money that I just created. And when you show up and redeem your little piece of paper for a cup of coffee, guess what I'm going to do with that piece of paper? I'm going to shred it. <laughs> I'm right. not going to recirculate it nice. to another customer. Of course because, you shred it. So that's how money is created. We th money is the equivalent of the federal government saying when we spend money into the existence, I owe you a dollar. Yep. Right. Which means you can take that piece of paper dollar bill and redeem it from the issuer at face value. The same way we issued it as a dollar is going to be redeemed at a, at a dollar, not as ninety five cents or a dollar fifty, because that's what we promised you. And the only thing the federal government promises when they issue money is to accept their own money back into in the form of payment of taxes or fines at face value. So that's how we should think about it mm -hmm. in terms of money being created in the system. And then once it's redeemed, it doesn't exist anymore, right? I, I paid my to you. I said, I owe you a cup of coffee. You showed up and, I re and you redeemed that uh, little coupon and debt is paid, we're clear. Yeah. There's no money. Yeah. Yeah. in that transaction. Well, yeah. that is super helpful. Okay, so I have this question for you, and this is a bit more philosophical about why we do taxes the way we do. If the reason we tax is not so that the federal, again, at the federal level, the federal government taxes is not so the federal government has money because, you know, federal government's broke. It's not true. It's not how it works. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to make decisions about who gets, who gets taxed. Mm -hmm. Why do we think that the $10,000 we've given to someone for a student loan yeah. later then should be removed from the system and destroyed? Why not, why not just give that money in the form of like grants or something for college as opposed to loans? Like, Should politicians be thinking about the Pell Grant, <laughs> which was... See, I got a Pell Grant. I don't know if you got Pell Grants, but that meant I didn't have to pay it back. It's just the federal government gave my college whatever it was, I think $2,000 or $2,500, some small, some small amount or something. But I didn't have uh -huh. to pay it back. They just granted it. Why? So like, what sense does it make to say, you know whose behavior we want to change? You, college graduate. We want mm -hmm. to make sure your your budget you know, is impacted by such and such a uh, a. a of debt that you've that you've taken on, like yeah. wouldn't the better answer to all of this student loan business and whether it's fully fine is just to make Absolutely. all of this in the form of grants and not in the form of loans to begin with? Absolutely. Wouldn't that be the answer? Absolutely, and and that's where these are the decisions that should have made should have been made decades ago when we started to reduce 
the government's contribution to, to these grants and started forcing students and their parents into going to private lenders to, to get an education in order to you know, get a job and start their professional lives. So that's what we're talking about here, canceling the entire debt, offering a public apology to the millions of people who had to go through this pain and fixing the problem at the source, which is providing universal public education to fuel the development of skills and knowledge and, and innovation for our society, for our economy. Mm-hmm. That's the right thing to do. Wouldn't, wouldn't some of the language around this for the Biden administration or any other administration that wants to do this in the future say, we're going to convert the loans into a grant? Wouldn't that be a, just sort of a better way to talk about it? Because I do think you're right that there's a trigger that happens in people's minds where they think, well, debt never goes away. So if you're not going to pay it, then I have to pay it. Yeah, And that just isn't a different headspace than, you know, I got a PPP loan for organization that we run. And they converted that loan into a forgivable grant. And that felt great to everybody. Everybody's like, hey, that's a a win. It's a little surprising that in all these conversations for decades about what we do with student loans, and even what the big move that Obama did by moving private lending money into now federal uh, loans, that it didn't move into into grants in some way. What I'm getting at is even separating out, like, let's find some way for the federal government to pay states, to pay for state colleges. Yeah. Like, just produce X amount of dollars for every person to get to go to college, and you never have to pay it back. You get 20 grand or, you know, basically take the Pell Grant and add a zero. I don't know what the, what the answer is. But does, you work this. Is anyone talking about this? Yeah, as I said earlier, we, we started with, big transformative programs that cut across all the major issues that we have, student debt, healthcare, education, uh, transportation, um, you know, climate uh, infrastructure. And, and that was the Green New Deal. And the Biden administration said, no way, we're not supporting anything like that. So we got a much, much smaller proposal that kind of captures some of those bits and pieces. And it was called the Build Back Better Bill. And the establishment of the Democratic Party and, of course, the Republican parties. And no way we're not having this thing called Build Back Better. It's too much money. It's too inflationary. It's too much. And we ended up with a much, much, much smaller (laughs) version of that. And it's called the Inflation Reduction Act and this little bit of debt cancellation uh, for, for students. And so we're moving slightly in the right direction, but we're not really addressing uh in a, in a transformative way, because we're going we're to bump against the deep vested interests mm-hmm. that control all the major components that, that we talked about earlier, real estate, uh, the financial institutions that benefit from this uh, debt entrapment system, uh, the big pharma, uh, you know, the, the entire power structure of the U.S. economy and the global economy to some extent is left intact with uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and with the student debt uh, partial cancellation. But on, but on this one, wh- who has vested interest? I mean, other than people thinking it's not fair, who has vested interest in people not having to pay back their student loans? Like, wh- what, what big cabal of worry is like, oh, I'll tell you what, if these people get their student loan, $10,000 or $20,000 of student loans forgiven, yeah. That's going to really undermine our power. Like it doesn't feel like that's even going to jeopardize all a, those people it, you're talking more, about. Would love for these people to not have the twenty thousand dollars in their future bank account deleted, you know, right. or eliminated, you know, cash wise, and let them be able to keep it so they can spend it because they're in the circulation system. So right. it, it's setting it's the just, precedent and it's opening a can of worms related to what else needs to be done to prevent this from happening again, which is going to the roots of the problem. And number two, kind of warns related other to other forms of uh, debt entrapment yeah. mechanism. We now let's talk, okay, now to debt. medical debt, right? Exactly. <laughs> medical debt, credit card debt, predatory lending, and, and the poorest well, I guess Well, I guess the difference though, I mean, look, I, I guess the difference is you could say, well, if your medical debt is owed to the federal government, then yes. Like that's the thing about these loans or a PPP loan. Here's the thing. Addressing the medical debt entrapment structurally means 
why is it that we don't have affordable healthcare, universal mm. healthcare? So sure. oh, there's that thing. What is it called? What is it called? Uh, Medicare for all. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Getting people to think about, oh, if, we, if we're going to really, really fix this um, medical debt trap, then we should change the way we deliver healthcare to people and how we finance yes. it, who gets to control the industry, who gets All to that. set prices for diabetes medication and things like that. It's a can of worm. And now we're back to step one, which is where we started. The Green New Deal had the components yeah. to structurally transform all of this. Sure. And we I, I hear that. But look, I've never, and, and all the arguments I've heard about the student loan forgiveness complaints, I haven't heard the people use a slippery slope argument. Like maybe that's deeply under there. But my yeah. friends who think this is a dumb idea, my brother-in-law who said this to me the other day, he's not thinking, oh, I don't want you know loans to be uh, leading to some kind of like universal health care. He yeah. just says, this is just ridiculous. This isn't how we should do it. It's not fair, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And and I don't want to have to pay for somebody else's semester that they blew off because they sat around playing foosball and didn't go to class and couldn't get a degree and now they have debt and I have to pay for it. That's what he's thinking. He's not into some like, well, someday this is now going to lead to, you know, diabetes treatments being funded by the federal government and that's where big pharma makes their money. Well, it, it's, a, it's very important rhetorically for those who oppose these massive structural transformations to focus on the little things that 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 people can yeah. grab on the the kind of anecdotal evidence of the of the college kid who was skipping classes and playing foosball and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, is, I mean, yeah, but but I think what, what you're saying to us is seven trillion dollars worth of debt. <laughs> That's right, not that much foosball being played. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, this this, but this point that you're making is: look, this is not the cause of debt uh, for the country is forgiving, or the cause of inflation is forgiving this debt, and you're not going to have to pay for it, friends. So it feels yep. to me like that's the thing people have to get their heads around. Yep. Fado, there's Fadal, a lot we could talk to you about, uh, I know, and we want to, and we do it every week. You're off to teach thanks. a class at Denison University yep. where you do all your all your good yep. work. So you have you schooled your... us. Now you have to go teach a class. Thank you. It's always a pleasure being on the show. Is it any just brief thing that that we've missed that we like any like little thing that you'd want to leave with us as we as we finish up this conversation about student loans, it's basically, I mean, is it that $10,000 is nowhere near enough they should have done it all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the way I think about it. You know how when, when you're jumping into a haystack and trying to find a little needle and then you're fighting with everybody else, is it a needle? Is it a pin? Is it, that's how I feel like what, what we're doing. We're into the haystack and we need to get out of the haystack and look at yeah. the bigger picture yeah. and realize what are we doing here yeah. who yeah. cares about the needle in the haystack let's talk about the bigger picture the structural issues right why are we here in the first place why are we in a haystack yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. These, these problems yeah so right. great Final, thank, thank you, you thanks uh th thanks all thank we, we will let you go and we'll chit chat with our uh with our friends online here for a second. all right thank you see you bye well, uh, Rob, such a great conversation. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, yep. again, it's mind blowing to me. Just mm -hmm. utterly mind blowing how the federal government actually works versus how yeah. I was told it. Works I had in my mind, I, I had in my mind that the federal government had two streams of revenue. One was they collected taxes and they paid for stuff with taxes, and whatever they else they couldn't afford, they just created that money. I see. Mm hmm. I the no, nah, it's an it's a it's a used IOU that they just throw away and take out of circulation. That was boom for me. Yeah, there's that one was, stream of money from the federal government. All money comes yes. from one source, and there's it's no just, oh, it's return. Just, it's just new every time. Every time it's new. I'll tell you this blow. Not does it make people's uh, minds stretch when they're like, "You're telling me that when I give my money to the federal government, that's it's not what they used to spend." It takes a minute, and then they and then they say to themselves, "Then why are they taking my money?" Yeah, like true. The I get yeah. it. I mean, this has been a conversation about MM MMP that we've been having, you know, in this in this whole time with Fadel. I, I, I'm not yet fully understanding why general income tax has to exist. 
I understand why behavioral taxes should exist. I don't understand why 7%, 15%, 20%, 30% of whatever you earn as income needs to be taxed. I just don't, philosophically, I don't understand it because the government doesn't need the money. Again, the state of Minnesota should tax me like that because that's how the state of Minnesota functions. My city should tax me like that because that's how the city's going to function or they're going to find a user tax. That's fair. But the federal government, if it's all about inflicting uh, behavioral effect on me, what effect are they making? Now, Fadl has said to me, well, it keeps you working, right? Like if you earn $10,000 and we take 15% of that, so now you have $8,500. You have to then work to make that next $1,500 that we took away from you. So we're keeping you working, right? So income taxes are designed in one theory to keep the merry-go-round going and to keep you working and active and, and all the rest. I'm like, okay, that is a terrible idea because at some point people have enough money already. Now you're just taking money and they're like, oh, I work for fun or I don't work because I don't have to, whatever. But any income I'm making, the fact that you're taking it is is very hard for people to grasp. And we want to believe that our federal financial system is is serious and fair. And I just think MMT yeah. has shown modern monetary understanding, meaning under theory understanding, tells you how it actually works. It's not a theory about how it should be. It's a very un- ineffective name, I think, modern monetary theory, because it makes it sound like someone's making yeah. a suggestion about how it right. should go. Right. It's it's an explanation about how it does go. Of how it is, yeah. Of how it yeah. is. And, and this is not... Uh, uh, because you can't tax billionaires enough to take the power away from billionaires. This is why I just like the whole thing, like, you know, we need to do is regulate billionaires and, and tax them. How much? <laughs> They're always yeah, going to have more. Exactly. It's the it's not the amount of money billionaires have, right? So if you take Bill Gates or Jay-Z or Michael Jordan or, you know, uh, Zuckerberg, it's not about how much money they have, put a dollar amount on it. It's about how much money do they have compared to the rest of us, right? Because they have more, they do more things and influence more outcomes. So the proportions aren't going to change because you tax somebody. So even that, I, I don't know, the whole question about taxing, unless it has something to do with keeping the cycle running, it's hard for me to yeah. validate that it's a legitimate thing that the federal government does. And then you know who I end up sitting around with? All the don't tax people, you know, political right. That's not a comfortable place. I, I don't oh. want to be sitting next to these guys yeah. that are telling me, oh. uh, you know, taxes is, taxes are crime. I don't think taxes are crime. I don't think it's theft. Yep. I don't think the government is yep. stealing money from me. I just think it's a bad idea. Like, and, and it feels like most of, and you know, we've talked to lots of politicians and lots of elected officials. Most of them have no idea of this. They think yeah. the way you and I think, which is either all yeah. the money comes from the federal government and then they spend some money, you know, and go into debt to spend money and they have to borrow that money from China or they don't have to borrow the money from China. They just make it on their own, but they still get money from taxes. That's how. Yeah. Everybody yep. except, you know, like yep. Fadl and maybe Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> In fact, Stephanie Kelton, who we've uh, played lots of her material here on this on this podcast. If you want to go back and listen to the, it's called the the myth or the deficit myth. She has a great book called The Deficit Myth, and she was on the she was worked on Bernie Sanders Senate team. And she worked in the Obama White House on this stuff. And she talks about how furious she was to hear Obama saying things like the federal government is broke. Like he was just running the same line that people hear all the time. So you've heard it from not only Democrats and Republicans, but from people who are very progressive Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's not just one. It's just it's it's not just one side of them. Yeah. Well, Doug, I am now seven minutes late to a meeting, so I, I probably ought to get rolling. That's a shame. I wish I could I send that seven minutes back to you and just, or destroy it. <laughs> hey, thanks all. Uh, very active chat today. Uh, lots of lots of goodness. If you're not yet over on YouTube, that's where all the action is, friends. So if you like these kinds of conversations, stick with us. 
Just find us over there. And Foddle's the best. He's yeah. the best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. every time we finish these, these this podcast, I'm like, just the best guests. Just the best. Yeah. If we could just yeah. get the hosts up to quality of our guests, <laughs> this, this thing might actually work. One of these days, we'll understand the economy and ask some quality questions as opposed to the, I feel like, I feel like Foddle, like he teaches college, but this is his like second grade class with when oh. he talks to you and me. Oh, dude, you know what this is an awful lot like when I talk to astrophysicist Paul Wallace and I have to, yeah. you know, have him explain to me what the moon does. Uh, it's, <laughs> but uh, we're, it's not that we're not informed people. It's these kind of, the, this stuff is. Yeah, I know. It's, it's I know. hard. Yep. By the way, I think we have astrophysicist Paul Wallace tomorrow. So uh, if you want to come nice. on for a little, for a little journey into, uh, into space, uh, we'll see you tomorrow. All right. Thanks, all. Bye.